0: scuderia f1 the podcast that's always up to speed with the latest formula one news follow us on twitter at scuderia f1 pod and subscribe to the show on itunes and stitcher now here are your hosts mark daly and kevin Larame.
1: good day good night and welcome to scuderia f1 the podcast that is always up to speed with formula one i'm kevin laramay with mark daly as always How have you been, Mark, since last week?
0: I'm doing great as always, uh, thank you, Kevin. And I'm doing even better tonight because uh, this is a race weekend. Formula One is back this week. And not only that, it's in uh, Azerbaijan, it's in Baku. And I never thought I would say this a couple of years ago (laughs) because I never knew what to expect, but I'm really looking forward to this race because stuff
1: happens. There's always drama. There's always drama. Baku always shakes things up. Are we going to see maybe a, a finally a different result in 2019 in Formula 1 than a 1-2 for the Mercs? Probably, hopefully, something's got to give at Baku, and that's what I like. It, it's like two cars going down a straightaway, and knowing that the turn that is coming, the close to 90 degree turns, you cannot do it side by side, so who's going to give? It's almost a game of chicken. There's, there's something about this Baku track that I like, too.
0: Yeah, you know, two years ago when they had the very first race there, that was the, uh, well, let's just face it. First of all, we know at some point somebody's going to drive into the wall, so there's going to be a safety car. And that's uh, exactly what happened in the first running of this race two years ago. And that's what uh, sort of kicked off that incident when Vettel decided to to pull out and smash his car into to Lewis Hamilton's car when they were uh, behind the uh the safety car, and then last year we had the unforgettable moment of the two Red Bulls crashing into each other at uh, turn one, and we've seen the Force Indias take each other out, and Roman Grosjean crash into the wall doing absolutely nothing while driving slowly behind the safety car. So you know there's going to be something... Interesting happened this weekend, and it's going to be something that you completely did not expect. So I'm just wondering this weekend, uh, as I sit down with my popcorn, if I could uh, use that meme. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what interesting and bizarre circumstance is going to unfold? But uh, at any rate, I mean, it, it is Formula One, and this uh, tends to be an exciting race. So really looking forward to it. Uh,
1: this is going to be race number four, and uh, it, it's still early in the season, but already. We have Ferrari announcing some development coming into the car for Baku. And that tells me one thing. It tells me that they figured out something quickly. They were able to produce it and to get it to the car and the team and to Baku inside of two months it's impressive, but it tells me that they figured out something once they started racing in Australia. Be like, okay, look, the Mercs are doing this. Okay, that's what we need to do. Let's get to work.
0: Well, you know, it's it's kind of a little bit mind blowing in in one thing that you say there that we're already into the fourth race of the season. I mean, it doesn't really feel like that long ago that we were just hitting the streets of Melbourne for the very first race of the year. But this, I think, is a very, very important weekend for Ferrari because they have underperformed and, and disappointed uh, so far this season. They just didn't have the pace in Australia. They had the uh, unfortunate circumstances of uh, both uh, drivers in, uh, in in Bahrain. Uh, Vettel had the, the, the moment when uh, he spun out and, of course, his wing coming off and then uh, Charles Leclerc having the, the mechanical problem. And then two weeks ago in China, they just uh, didn't have the pace again to keep up with, uh, with the Mercs around the Shanghai International Circuit. So th- this is, I-, I think, even though there are still 18 races to go, including this one, that um, I think it's more of a statement weekend for Ferrari. I-, I think they need to get a bit of momentum back because they looked so good and they were so promising in, in winter st- testing that they seemed to be the car to beat, that everybody was saying that they're at least half a second quicker than everyone else. But when it came to actual racing and the, uh, the, the winter championship, as it's called uh, preseason testing was, was over that when it actually started to count, they just weren't able to deliver that, that race pace. And there was questions behind the reliability. So I think they need this uh, for, for their own confidence, uh, if anything else.
1: No, yeah, no, I agree. And to, to set the tone for the rest of the season, right? Four races already, which is, a fifth of the season, a bit less, but it's not a sixth yet. So it's it's a fifth of the season almost already. And clearly, even though it might have not have looked as bad, it's it's a clear domination through and through for uh, the two Mercedes cars. So you do need to change the momentum aspect, even though it's Formula One. It's not a sport where momentum of a certain race, depending of which race follows each other, You cannot necessarily carry over that momentum, but Merckx have carried the momentum so far in 2019. So for Ferrari, if you do set the tone, if you do maybe get the pole, and I think that would send a message, I think that's the objective for Saturday, right? Get the pole, make a statement saying you're back, you're quick, and we're actually going to have battles on the streets of Baku on Sunday.
0: Well, yeah, you're, you're exactly correct, Kevin. And I think we really need to see Bahrain Ferrari show up and not Australia and China Ferrari uh, show up because what, when, when they were in the desert, I mean, they were miles ahead, and, and even in the race, they had the, the the pace to get out front of the Mercs and stay there. And if it, it wasn't for the, uh, the the problems that they had, uh, some self-inflicted. Well, I guess they were both self-inflicted: one by a driver, and one by the uh, just the mechanical uh, issues in the, the the back of Leclerc's car. So they were obvious the, the 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 best and fastest car on that uh, that time so whether or not they can uh, do that again because i mean baku is an interesting circuit because it is for uh, a street circuit it's not really compact i mean it's the complete opposite of monaco oh
1: yeah which, no it's it's yeah. vast for a yes. street circuit yeah
0: yeah, absolutely. Vast is, uh, is a really great uh, way to describe it. I mean, it does have its tight and twisty and uh, and, and uh, really narrow technical parts uh, to the circuit. But then you've got that front straightaway that kind of dog legs about uh, halfway or two thirds of the way down, which is, what, what is it? Something like three kilometers long or something. I think it's the longest uh, yes. straightaway
1: on the, on the calendar in the entire year. I think it's 2.9. So, it's not to be pedantic, yeah. but uh, if I'm not mistaken, it, it is the longest straightaway. It's not like a hundred percent straight. There's a bit of an angle to it, but it is the longest straight away. Like this, this circuit has two parts that are like extremely long altogether. Yeah,
0: it's like two completely different circuits uh, wrapped into one. And so it's going to be a, a real test to see whose car is best suited and adapt to, to both portions uh, of the circuit. Because uh, don't forget, there's also a bit of a, a, a long straight around the back of the track as well before they even come around through some of the corners to get back onto the long start finish straight. So is this going to be a track that uh, favors a uh, Ferrari? Is it going to be a, a track that uh, favors a uh, Mercedes or somebody else? But it like I say, I mean, it, it's uh, it's definitely time for a Ferrari to step up and 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 get back to what they really hinted at in in pre-season testing and. You know, when they come back after the first couple of races of the year, I mean, they always start uh, in Australia. We have some of the Asian races and the the race in Bahrain. And when they come back towards Europe is when we tend to see the first round of upgrades and improvements uh, go into the back. uh, Well, not just in the back of the car, but also uh, aero upgrades go onto the cars as well. So it is uh, definitely going to be interesting to see how the, uh, the changes that Ferrari are going to introduce are going to make a difference, uh, if at all. Because uh, Sebastian Vettel says that uh, they're really in a, a pivotal and key part of the season already. I mean, it uh, seems kind of insane to say that. I mean, we're, we're barely a month into the new year, but uh, Sebastian is saying that over the next couple of weeks, are going to be extremely vital to what Ferrari do and how they develop mm-hmm the 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 car this year, so they're really going to have to make some de- decisions based on what's happened over the uh, the course of the first couple of races, and then this weekend in Baku, and they're going to have to make some uh, tough decisions on how they're going to develop the car for the, the the rest of the year, and well, I mean, if they get it wrong, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, you can't dial it back because once you're trying to catch up. I mean, they're already trying to catch up to Mercedes. But if they make the wrong decisions on how they're going to develop and evolve this car, the SF ninety over the next several months before they stop and start concentrating on next year's car, you know, you it's it's crucial. It's really really crucial.
1: Well, if they don't get the development right, which we have no idea right now, we're speculating. But a Red Bull might be able to catch him by the end of the season like we've seen in the last two years. So there, there's that possibility. And I think Baku is the first indication of the development and which way it's going. Is it going the right way, the quicker way, the most reliable way? Or is it creating more problems? And it doesn't happen... Often in Formula 1, because it's the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the engineers, the mechanics, the designers of the cars, it's the best of every job, so you don't see it often, but lately we have seen teams getting it wrong. And some teams, it's been years now that they're stuck in a rut because they've got it wrong. So you actually never know, but I'm not necessarily worried at all for Ferrari, I have to say. And then, yes, I was referring to Williams, by the way, and McLaren. But for Ferrari, all indication points to successful upgrades and maybe that gap shortened a bit by the end of the weekend.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, uh, it- yeah, I was going to run this by you, Kevin, and I was just looking at the the, the Drivers' Championship. Uh, of course, we have uh, Lewis Hamilton on top with 68 points, just uh, six points uh, ahead of his teammate Valtteri Bottas with 62. Uh, Verstappen is third for Red Bull with 39 points. And Sebastian Vettel is uh, currently fourth in the World Championship with uh, 37 points. So, I mean, Seb hasn't had the best start of the season but I, I think apart from the moment that he had in, in Bahrain, uh, and of course, he has been a little bit fortunate of um, the 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 benefit of uh, being on the right side of some team orders. Of course, in uh, in Australia, he just uh, could, had no pace in the car there, and uh, Charles Leclerc was faster. But team orders uh, held that uh, that track position with uh, Sebastian in front and uh, and Charles and uh, b- behind him, they ended up finishing fourth and fifth that race. Of course, uh, Sebastian had his moments spinning out when he was trying to overtake uh, Lewis Hamilton in uh, in Bahrain and then after his wing came off uh, dropped down uh, the, the the running order as he was going back to the pits and then in China 2 weeks ago he finishes in third position but again uh, sebastian a beneficiary again to a certain degree of uh, of team orders but I think that even though it wasn't really a glamorous, flashy kind of finish, I think China was probably his best race of the season so far. I mean, a- at least what he he did in the car was good. He didn't have any moments uh, like he had in in uh, in Bahrain the, the the previous race weekend, and uh, he just uh, did what he needed to do. So Sebastian is saying that you know he's in good form and uh, he's got no plans to uh, to to retire. He's uh, insisting at the top of his game, which I think is interesting when he says that he is at the top of his game and uh, he, uh, he he's planning to stay in the uh, the, the sport. So I, I wonder where those uh, suggestions came from. But he's going to have to, I, I think, really start to get onto a, a role. And of course, uh, to do that, I mean, he's going to need the car to, um, uh, to really Uh, get him the uh, results that he needs because, I mean, he's only 21 points behind Lewis Hamilton in the World Championship right now, but as the races go on and if he continues to get these thirds and fourths or perhaps even worse like we saw in Bahrain, then that that gap is going to open up very, very quickly, and we're going to know, I would think, within the next month or so, is this a legitimate uh, challenge by Ferrari for the World Championship and their drivers? Or is it going to be Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas slowly eking away and opening up uh, a lead at the top of the championship and then basically have the, the 2019 version of uh, Formula One that we saw for several years, when it was well, is it going to be Lewis Hamilton going to win, or is it going to be Nico Rosberg's this uh, turn this season? So, time will tell. But certainly Ferrari need to step it up, and they need to get it done and get it uh, sorted out really, really quickly.
1: Let's not discount Charles Leclerc. I think if we yes. see, if we see Bahrain, Charles Leclerc in Baku, which we can, uh, Charles Leclerc does have experience. At the Baku circuit, I just remember off the top of my head, I don't know if it's last year or the year before, but a spectacular move by Charles Leclerc at the Baku circuit. And I remember him talking in interviews how it's one of his favorite circuits to, to drive on. So Charles Leclerc in a upgraded Ferrari, hmm, could he be the one to get the pull and could that continue to? I don't want to say change the amount of confidence Sebastian Vettel has, but I think I think Leclerc needs it because. I think his confidence is not that it's dwindling when, you know, you're, you're being told to stay back. You're being told to let the guy pass. Your car is breaking down when you clearly have the shot to get your first win in your Formula One career. So, you know, reality and Formula One life is is coming at you real quick and it's, it's real. So uh, a win could maybe help you go back into the mode of the confidence and the growth of that confidence.
0: Absolutely, Kevin. And we'll talk a little bit more about that after we take a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. And we'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits... All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. And uh, Kevin, yeah, that's a, that's a great point that you raised just before the break. And uh, Charles Leclerc, of course, uh, based on what we've we've seen so far this year, that he's equally a match for his teammate in uh, Sebastian Vettel, and uh, he's definitely hungry and thirsty for success uh, in in Formula One. And uh, he's proved that uh, already that if he uh, figures he's got a way around uh, Sebastian Vettel, and even if he's told to to hold still. He's going to take that opportunity because that's exactly what he did in, in Bahrain and in the other two races. He's been uh, he's been a good boy and uh, done what he's been told and just uh, held station uh, behind his teammate. But yeah, that that's a, a twist that maybe a, a lot of us were wondering were gonna ha- w- was gonna unfold this year. Would Charles be able to um, be mm-hmm. a match for his teammate? And if that so, would he be as good as or faster than uh, than Sebastian? And if he was faster than him, would he be fast enough to uh, to to stay up with um, the the two Mercedes cars? So, if they can get him that car again the, this weekend and back, it would be great to see a three way fight because yeah. I, I thought that was one of the most enjoyable things about uh, the Grand Prix in uh, ba- uh, sorry in Bahrain a couple of uh, weeks ago mm-hmm. was just the fact that it was for the first time I think we we really saw. Both the Mercs and the Ferraris mixing it up all afternoon long, and uh, and for me that's something that I've always wanted to see over the years. As as Ferrari has closed the gap and become more of a regular uh, challenger and competitor to Mercedes, was oh boy, this weekend I'd really love to see Sebastian and and Lewis Hamilton uh, going at it. And uh, and it just seemed like those moments were too far and and few between. So I'm hoping that uh, that that we saw in the desert uh, was uh, going to be the new normal rather yeah. than just fleeting glance, right?
1: Hopefully it is. But I want to continue on Charlotte Clown because yep. to put in perspective what he's doing, you can't really compare him to Vettel, Bottas, or. Even Hamilton, for that matter. You, you need to find a situation that's really comparable. And I think Pierre Gasly and Charles Leclerc are going to be a, a measuring stick for each other throughout the season. Yes, the car is different, and you can, you can understand in both the results the car. But you can judge their, their work, too, by how they perform with that car compared to their teammates and how they either perform well or not that well, how they adjust themselves to the driving of their particular car this year versus what they're used to before with Toro Rosso or Alfa Romeo last year for each of the the two examples I'm talking about. But Pierre Gasly has struggled this year in qualifying, has struggled this year in race pace, has struggled to adapt himself to... The new car for Red Bull. Which is not the case for Charles Leclerc. He was quick in uh, Bahrain. He was quick. He should have won Bahrain. He was quick in Australia too. He was quick everywhere so far. So for me, it's just a question of time. Before Charles Leclerc gets an amazing result. The podium. And uh, if not like another another podium. If not a win. uh, I think it's going to be very, very quick. The great i would say return on investment for ferrari and trusting a young driver so i think we're going to see it And looking and comparing charles leclerc to pierre gasly it puts you in perspective just the the amount of of talent and work that it it did take charles leclerc to achieve what he did already this year
0: yeah i, I think that's a, that's a great point and, and and charles leclerc i think is really settled into Ferrari, and he's really shown, at least in the the early stages through winter testing and the, the first several races of the year, that the move that Ferrari decided to make to bring him from Alfa Romeo into Ferrari, to be one with the second youngest driver in their history, I mean, it's just something they don't do. He's really justified and and rewarded them for that. I mean, and it just seems at this point that it's not a question of if, but when he starts uh, winning races, and Gasly. Let's let's not forget that he's also uh, a, a well-respected and uh, prospect or uh, young driver that uh, that has a lot of potential in him. But whereas the fit for for Charles at the Ferrari seems to be very natural, and I mean, of course, that really goes to show how good of a driver that he is. Because I mean, was with uh, with Sauber Alfa Romeo last year. He was just miles ahead of his uh, teammate uh, Marcus Ericsson in, uh, in in the same, which was of yeah. course an inferior car. He really extracted everything out of it. So I mean, but there's a big difference between the
1: two guys themselves. Yeah, and, oh yeah. Uh, I think yeah. the big big difference here is okay. Let's be blunt here. Charles Leclerc is a guy from Monaco. Yeah, Gastly is a guy from France. Yeah. Uh, quite a bit of different upbringing, which gives you uh, a bit of a difference in charisma. Charleclaire has a lot of charisma, but you've raised a Monaco, like <laughs> it's almost a given. But it's how to handle pressure situation at that level and the pressure of the people and the money invested and, and all those things that yeah. you get from being exposed to a different world with a, a bit of a richer environment. Let's put it this way.
0: Yeah, because yeah, the, very good point. And where where I was going with uh, with with uh, my uh, train of thought was that where as uh, Charles uh, looks very comfortable and and a very natural fit in Ferrari, Gasly has been. I don't want to take anything away from him. I mean, he he did de- deserve. Uh, I mean, a, a move up from from Toro. So I think he was uh, he showed it at times last year that uh, that that he has potential to do more in a better car and a faster car. However, he he struggled so far at Red Bull. He he didn't um, he just didn't have the pace. In uh, in winter testing, he smashed up a car, which uh, not only affected his uh, his testing mileage, but also uh, Verstappen's because they had to sort of sort of uh, raid pieces from the cars here and there to to uh, finish that uh, second testing session. So it affected that, and of course throughout the first couple of races, he just was uh, miles behind his teammate. However, in China a couple of weeks ago, he was much closer. Max finishing P4 at Shanghai, and uh, Pierre was a P6, and that That's honestly, that's where I would expect and want to see him at that point. I think that obviously Max is a better driver, at least at this point, the the faster driver uh, of the two. And uh, so I I just can't see Pierre Gasly uh, running side by side and pushing Max Verstappen. I think that uh, just doesn't seem like a realistic thought at this point. But certainly I think that wherever Max finishes... I would think that if they have equal equipment, they're driving identical cars that he should be within a place or two of his, of,
1: of his yeah. team. Yeah. and Yeah, like he, uh, I would say like inside half a second for sure. Yeah. That should yeah, be the absolutely. benchmark like like inside what is generally considered what a driver brings to a car, right? Inside that difference. The difference that, that a good driver makes to a car versus a great driver, that that difference is what to a tenth of a second, if you're inside that difference, okay, you you're competing.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and if you look at what Max Verstappen has done too, I mean, he's just fast. <laughs> I mean, we we saw it uh, right almost from 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 the get go. Like uh, he really showed well. When he was with uh, Toro Rosso, and then of course jumping into the Red Bull, he re- wins his very first race in uh, in Spain at the Spanish Grand Prix a couple of years back, and he hasn't looked back. I mean, of course the the, the wins have sometimes been spread out, but of course uh, Red Bull has been the best of the rest. They've um, had to sort of pick up the pieces and kind of the the leftovers in uh, in situations where Ferrari or Mercedes haven't been able to to take advantage uh, of things and. Well, maybe not even that. I mean, go back to uh, Mexico last year where they just flat out outperformed uh, both the, the, the Mercs and the Ferraris. So uh, Max, we know what uh, what he can bring to the table. We know he's fast and uh, he's uh, one of the top drivers in, in Formula One. So getting anywhere close to, to his lap times would, uh, would be a, a real feat. And, and Christian Horner has even said that he thinks that um, if, if Gasly's going to have more success Driving for for the big team, uh, he's going to have to change his his driving style to suit the the RB15 uh, a little bit more. But you know, just uh, talking a little bit more about Red Bull now. uh, You you uh, started off the show there talking about how Ferrari is bringing upgrades to uh, Baku, and uh, well, Red Bull they're doing the same thing at least. Honda is bringing upgraded engines uh, for both the Red Bull and uh, Toro Rosso, so it, uh, it it's a, a spec too, and it, improve, it They they say it, it offers improved durability in life, and and better reliability, and also that's a slight boost in performance. So, but you just- know,
1: Mark, for me, I was talking earlier in this show how Ferrari, I'm not worried about their their upgrades, but yep. that's the interesting part here. The first upgrade in the Honda-Red Bull partnership. We've seen a Toro Rosso upgrade last year, but it wasn't the same. We've heard Christian Orner and the people from Honda talk about how they really work together and in close proximity in the design of the car, design of the powered drivetrain and the MGUK and the size and the positioning and the design to, to facilitate performance for the car. And uh, when you bring upgrades from Honda and from Red Bull, it's the working relationship. Upgrades are are testing that relationship because the upgrades are sometimes more done by one of the two sides, and then you you put them together and you try to to make it work to the best possibility. What I'm saying here is it's a test. It's an early test in the relationship of Red Bull and Honda, and it's going to be another indication. To see if they're on the right track for Honda to be successful and contend again for wins quickly with Red Bull, a, a good partner, a big, big budget team. So I think this race will give us an idea of how this partnership could evolve or continue to, to grow this year and will give us maybe even a timeline. If the first upgrade and Red Bull have slashed a second and they're just below, just literally behind Ferrari and the Mercs, well, job done, mission accomplished, next upgrade, heck, you might be as quick. But if not, it might just be a re- realization that, okay, we might still be far away and still need to work really hard to shave off that second until the mid-season point
0: yeah and one of the big things uh, the the big differences between red bull and honda compared to say mclaren and honda is just the synergy and the good close working relationship that uh, that the two seem to have in when honda was supplying McLaren for you know a couple of years ago. I mean it was a, a disaster. It was basically engine car put them together. Okay, it doesn't really work as uh, as everybody was hoping. Of course the, the the engine was not reliable all the time and it didn't deliver the power. But the big difference is like you say Kevin, the what what they're doing with Honda, what they're doing with Red Bull is they're very much partners and they're not just manufacturing a car and an engine and, and 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 putting them together, they're designing a unit. They're integrating the engine into the chassis and they're, they're designing around it. And it's giving them more flexibility to, to do things. And I think that's that's really helped what the Red Bull has achieved so far this year, because that was going to be the benchmark right from the very beginning. Or the big question, I should say, is where is Red Bull going to be this year? Are they going to be the same as they were with the renault engines that they've had for the uh, the, the past number of years are they going to be ahead of that or are they going to be behind that and certainly that the, that mark that that benchmark that reference is they got to be at least where they were on a par with uh, with with 2018 and and the renault power and that was honda's stated goal right from the very beginning after they made that partnership and certainly that benchmark has been there for me, I think they're slightly ahead of it. I mean, we we haven't seen, say, uh, Verstappen running off in the distance and leaving the Ferraris and the Mercedes, uh, you know, choking in his dust. But we saw in uh, in Australia in the first uh, race of the year, we saw Max Verstappen just basically outdrag Sebastian Vettel down the front straight. Of course, he had the benefit of DRS, and and Vettel was strug- struggling anyways, but. Certainly, we were not expecting to see a Red Bull do that, and uh, regardless if it had a Honda engine in it or or a Renault. So that for me was an indication. Okay, these guys, I, I think, are uh, at least a little bit of head when they had the the the, the Renault power, and it, it's just kind of funny to see how close you know they they work with Red Bull compared to uh, you know a Honda. And mclaren how they were working and just um you know how dysfunctional that relationship was but yeah it, it's uh it, it certainly is interesting to see how that uh, that whole situation is involved uh unvo- <laughs> sorry evolving and uh, well, unfolding
1: uh, in front of our eyes
0: yeah well i think it's interesting though kevin just uh i, I think what they're they're saying is that it, it's the uh, the the uh, the upgrades to the Honda engine right now are more on the reliability on the mechanical side, and they're they're being very modest and conservative in uh, saying what they 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 might expect in terms of performance.
1: Well, I think it's what they have been doing since the partnership with Honda is damper expectations from the Rebel fans, because uh, you never heard Horner or anyone else from Rebel say we're going to win in 2019 like X amount of races, right? So that being the case, they know there's going to be a learning curve and there's going to be a growing curve. And by mid-season, according to Max Verstappen, they can be contenders in races. And by this point, the championship will be difficult. But if you do get to win every race or at least battle for it, you learn, you put yourself in a situation, and you actually get to know that next year we're going to fight for a championship. So I think that's where Red Bull will hope to be by the end of this year, is to mid-season start to contend and by the end of the year have a few wins behind your, uh, uh, few wins uh, uh, in your belt to learn and take that experience to the next season.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment as we take another break here on the Overtime Media Network. Uh, Don't go away. We will be right back here on Scuderia F1. All right, uh, welcome back to the show. And uh, Kevin, yeah. Uh, what we were just talking about uh, b- before the break just with the, the Honda and the Red Bull situation and just about how maybe they may be in a position to make a run of the world championship next year and maybe targeting wins this year. It, it's very interesting when you hear some of the things that are being said in uh, in, in the media this week by uh, Max Verstappen and uh, and Christian Horner. Max is saying that you know he's targeting wins later this year and Honda was even saying a couple of weeks ago that they think it's possible that they could be challenging for for wins sometime mid season, whereas uh, Christian Horner he's sort of tempering those uh, expectations a, a little bit, saying that they they haven't set any goals uh, or any targets for the number of races that they want to, to, to win in in twenty nineteen, and I, I think you just have to accept that it seems. I wouldn't say inevitable, but it seems to me that they have a very good shot of winning races this year. And we all know at this point, just the, the issues that they had with the, with Renault power over the last several seasons. And just that, that they were, were struggling to keep up with the, with the Mercs and the Ferraris. But still, even though they were faced with that deficit, there have been wins to, for them available for Daniel Ricardo and Max Verstappen over the past couple of years. And, uh, I, I just find it—it's different. You have the cool head of, uh, of Christian Horner on one side saying, "Oh, you know, we're, you know, we're not really targeting any set number." And and Max being, well, I guess Max in in the car is pretty much the same as Max out of the car, and he's just going to go for it, <laughs> you know, whether it be a pass for position on the track or just coming out and uh, just being quite bold in his statements. And uh, you know, I, I like to hear what what he's saying and that uh, that he believes that. They will be a contender by the the, the middle of the year, and uh, well, the only way that we'll know is well, they'll just have to prove it right or be proven wrong, and and certainly at this point the signs do look uh, promising.
1: They do look promising, uh, and more promising than a lot of the other's team so far this year. Uh, I alluded to it earlier, but Williams Mark is uh, it's not progressing. <laughs> and i think regressing is even not giving it it fair justice yeah they need to the, to work according to uh motorsport.com williams needs to develop at double or triple the speed of everybody else because they're so far behind they're not yeah. behind by weeks or by kilometers per hour mark at this point they're behind by years they are at least a year behind
0: well, you know, Kevin, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that you take a Mercedes or a Ferrari or a Racing Point or whoever, you take that car to Barcelona in February, and then you take that same car back to Barcelona at the end of the year, and that car is going to be a couple of seconds a lap quicker. I mean, that's just the way that Formula One is, and that's how the things evolve in these cars as they develop them throughout the season, they just get, they get quicker and th- and that's just the way it is. And, you know, it, it seems kind of crazy to say, well, how can that car be two seconds a lap quicker or whatever it might be at the end of the season? It, it's not like they're blowing every way, uh, everyone away on the track. They're all making these incremental developments over the course of every weekend. And, uh, and, and the time spent back in the factory in between races. So it, it's incremental, but, the thing is, it's it's constant, and they're all doing it. And the one thing that you need to make these big quantum leaps in Formula One, Kevin, is cha-ching, money, right? And Williams is not Ferrari. They're not Mercedes. They're not even a Red Bull. I mean, they've got a decent budget, but...
1: They, they should't be have though. the
0: budget to They're- to basically dig them out from what is basically Formula One Stone age and uh, and get past a car that has fundamental flaws and there's there's no way I mean it let's okay. it is possible that they could develop at that rate. However, it's not likely they're going to develop that car and fix those no. problems at, at at a rate of two to three times yeah. everyone else, especially the teams with the bigger budgets. But of course, they're not looking to compete with Ferrari or Mercedes. <laughs> they're looking to compete with Toro Rosso. Or they're with looking hat,
1: to finish races at this point. Yeah, or finish <laughs> races, yes. <laughs> Never mind competing. Can we reach the checkered flag? Like, that's the goal for Williams and Baku, is never mind finishing in the points. Let's just talk about finishing. Yeah, finish the race first, then worry about points afterwards. Yeah, no, it's almost like a joke at this point, and it feels bad to say this, because when you look at the, the money aspect in Formula 1, the biggest budget, okay, the, there's more bigger teams than there used to be. And if you don't invest more proportionally, According to your your rivals, you're going to go down the pecking order. But like McLaren, Renault, you have Ferrari, Red Bull, and Mercedes. For sure, those five teams are way bigger in the budget than <laughs> Williams. But after that, Racing Point, Alfa Romeo, Haas, and Williams. Should Williams really be the worst of those four teams I just mentioned? Mm, No, it should be higher with the amount of money, experience, infrastructure they have. They should not be below Alfa Romeo and below a team like even Haas or even a team like Racing Point.
0: No, they they, they shouldn't, Kevin. And and that's the shocking thing about it is that not only are they they where they are but i mean they've gone there relatively quickly and even more alarming on top of that is that they've developed two cars in the the FW41 last year and the FW42 this year is not only they are they slow but they have fundamental problems in them that you would think that a team that has the pedigree a team that has people with the knowledge and the experience is what are they interpreting wrong, and how has this happened? And that's why, t- to me, it's really shocking that a team that was under the guidance of chief technical officer, or probably former chief technical officer, Patty Lowe, at this point has been basically uh, put on permanent leave from, uh, from from Williams. Is that he was with, uh, sorry, with uh, with Mercedes for a while, uh, you know, for several years there. And of course, they were winning. And I thought, well, even at that point, when he moved over to Williams, well, that that seemed like a good move. It seemed like quite a coup. I mean, they they got uh, there was all the time, of course, when uh, Rosberg retired and Bottas went uh, went the other way. But uh, the, the the point is that you thought a guy that was coming from uh, a key role in a team like uh, Mercedes would be able to do something uh, with Williams. And I was thought, if anything, they might go up the pecking order a little bit. I thought maybe they might be able to challenge the Red Bulls. Because, I mean, it's only a couple of years since they were like fourth in the world championship. But they've dropped like a stone through the order. And they've just completely lost the plot in doing so. I mean, and you you mentioned McLaren as well just now, Kevin. The thing is with McLaren, they're obviously not up there challenging uh, for for wins or podiums uh, just yet. But uh, they've had some moments uh, so far, uh, uh, Carlos Sainz looked very competitive in Bahrain until he had that coming together with uh, Verstappen, and that kind of ruined his afternoon when he kind of dropped through the order. But the know, thing is that there, there seems to have been some forward progress. It may be small, but oh, McLaren sure. this year seemed to have made one step forward. Oh, yeah, even
1: just even the last two years, Mark, as bad as McLaren is compared to where we thought they should be. They yep. were never, never. They were never Williams. Like we've, we've watched Drive to Survive together, Yep. And uh, the amount of time, like, actually, McLaren was in the top ten and in the points before something happens was like half the races last year. So you know, McLaren was actually doing a lot better in comparison to, to, to Williams this year. Oh yeah, like, I mean, it, Williams it is, is just... two seconds back. Yeah. So we imagine they're two seconds back. Kubica is slower than his teammate by the exact margin that a top driver usually brings to a car. So yep. Kubica is doing nothing this year, and I feel bad for him. It's too bad for too bad to say it, but I don't think he can do it. You know that was a question, and we maybe maybe it's mean for me to say it. Tell the guy who had a dream to come back to race in Formula One, even though he had injuries that might impede his progress in motorsport, and uh, turns out that. I maybe it has nothing to do with the injuries, but there's a yep. reason why it's a young man's sports. It's, yes. it's a lot easier to go 300 kilometers an hour on Le Rouge and know that your car is going to stick than to do the same when you're 30 something years old and you have kids waiting for you at home.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. But just to, to add on what you were saying about uh, Robert Kubica as well, you, you know that there's something going on when the guy says that the highlight of his race is when he spun out on the warm-up on the formation lap. And uh, that, that just, uh, again, just uh, goes to show, I think, some of the problems that that he's having with the car. And, you know, maybe he's just having problems uh, as a driver as well. But also just uh, going back to uh, McLaren, Carlos Sainz uh, it says that uh, he's uh, really fired up that uh, the incoming managing uh, director, Andreas Seidel, has uh, made a, a really good impression. and He's really impatient to start working at the Formula One team. And uh, they recruited him uh, away from the Porsche LMP1 program. And uh, so he's going to be uh, the, the guy that uh, they hope is going to really um, help Bring McLaren back to to where they want to go, and I mean he's he's had a very successful uh, career uh, around motorsports, and uh, again like James Key, who they managed to get away from from Toro Rosso, and had to to, to wait some time. They they've been able to try and re- get some key people in there. But it's not as been as simple as say giving your two weeks notice at your current employer, uh, be that uh, Porsche or Toro Rosso, and then you know starting to work for uh, for for McLaren. It's a little bit more complicated uh, than than that at the top. But they're they're starting to make some I think some 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 progress. I mean they certainly have some good people there, and compared to uh, say some of the other teams that they're competing with right now. They do have the financial and technical know-how and uh, and uh, resources available to to really make a difference. So you ha- you have a guy like sporting director uh, Jill DeFerrin uh, looking at that side, the racing uh, side of it. And I mean, Jill is a legend from, from IndyCars. Uh, I mean, he's, he's he's a racer. He ah. gets it. He understands it. And then you have Zach Brown. And, you know, I got a lot of respect for Zach. I mean, I think that he's come into a, a very difficult uh, situation, a, a place that was ruled by Ron Dennis and maybe was the, the microcosm compared <laughs> to Bernie Ecclestone and the Formula <laughs> macrocosm, right? I mean, he was yeah. there for
1: decades and read it the way that he wanted. So, I mean. We wh- know that being the man to replace the man is a tough job to, to oh yeah place to i mean be. exactly right and so uh, a- being like replacing ron dennis for mclaren is basically replacing god uh, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty much it's, it's, it's a big big shoes to fill and you're talking about big decisions that zach brown had to take from the signing of alonzo to the dealing of alonzo with the lack of results coming from mclaren and to even some back end work behind the scenes of rebuying some shares and redistributing and creating a new, uh, a new, uh, very high performance model car and like a lot of things McLaren's been working outside of Formula One, too. That is Zach Brown's responsibility. So, for me, his work is actually commendable and uh, doing it so in a very transparent way, I think is, uh, I think it was very refreshing. It is very refreshing to see in Formula One the new crop of head of teams that are transparent and uh, seem to be open. like When someone's transparent, but he's always happy, feel like he's just hiding his his bad side instead of being transparent. I don't know if you understand what I mean. But -hmm. for Zach Brown, he feels like he's genuine in the good times and in the bad times. When it's not going well, he's not going to be the funny guy with the joke because not going well it's so it's normal and uh i don't know it's refreshing to me
0: yeah absolutely and kevin we're just going to take one final break uh, for for the show this week and then we'll be right back in just one moment Okay, everybody, welcome back to Scuderia F1 here on the Overtime Media Network, and uh, just to finish off at that uh, thought, Kevin from the uh, previous segment, uh, yeah, what, what you were saying about Zach Brown, I, I, I totally agree on uh, on your thoughts. I mean. Uh, He is, I I think, uh, a a guy that is very serious in what he does. I mean, he's quite open. I think, uh, you know, he's very presentable and uh, uh, you know fairly forthcoming. I mean, uh, in the in the media when he's uh, interviewed, I mean, you're never going to get the full story or the full answer, but uh, he certainly comes across uh, very well. And uh, under his watch, I mean, there there have been some improvements, but. They they've even been admitting this week, uh, McLaren that is that they they still know that they have a, a very very long road ahead of them, and that was a uh, Jill DeFerrin that was uh, saying that. I mean, they're 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 putting the pieces in place, and that that's the thing that you have these key roles, and you need these key roles to be filled by good people that uh, that uh, you know they have the skills and the uh, the talents to to do these jobs, and then that's what you have to do if you're like a good manager. Uh, like Zach Brown, is get these people in place and then just let them do what you brought them into. And in theory, you know, you should get some positive results out of that. But uh, Formula One can be cruel that way, that you may oh. be making uh, so some improvements somewhere,
1: but <laughs> everyone else around you is improving faster than you are. Mark, you're you're making me think of something, and I think I just found the perfect way to put it as well. To Formula One, and I think that's uh, and one of the examples would be Sebastian Vettel with Ferrari. But there's a lot of more examples in the history of Formula One where someone's working somewhere, like a big talent's working somewhere, and you get that talent and you bring it back. Maybe that's the case for William and Paddy Lowe. But it, you bring talent to your team, but the best thing you can do is make sure you don't impede that talent once he's with your team. And I think because of either routine of because of preconceived ideas of experience or sometimes just ego, a lot of teams or managers or drivers don't necessarily accustom themselves to the situation and let the talent dictate and do not impede that talent. Either Mm -hmm. an agent new when he comes with a new new team and it doesn't work out, a Paddy Lowe with Williams – a Alonso with McLaren a Vettel with Ferrari are we sure not someone that is impeding their talent or uh, I think that it can apply to almost any job in Formula One sometimes team will bring a talent in but want the talent to do things their way and maybe that impedes that talent or so so I think that's a, it's interesting interesting thought process.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, we've seen examples in other sports where that just spending money and bringing in the highest-paid talents—I'm going to put that in inverted commas—is—is is, is not always uh, the the answer. Just uh, because you have uh, deep pocketbooks and you just splash money around, doesn't mean that you're going to have a uh, success. Just because you have the best uh, football players, or you have the best engineers, or you have—you uh, know—you sign LeBron to your team, whatever it is, right? It—it—it's uh, it, more. Uh, it's more nuanced than that. There, there, there's more to it than just uh, spending money. I mean, you have to spend it on the, on the right people in the right manner and then getting those uh, those key people in the key positions and then just the, the overall uh, chemistry and just uh, everything, all these old things that uh, that that go uh, in, into, into or need to go into place. But then, Kevin, uh, there, there was another thing, sort of just building on the, the the whole technical theme there. Just in general, I thought this was a, an, an interesting comment uh, that uh, Valtteri Bottas said that uh, earlier this week, that uh, he believes that uh, the lead cars are still controlling the races, uh, despite the, the the changes that they've made to the aerodynamics uh, for this year, you know, the simplified uh, front wings and the, the, the rear wings and the barge boards and all that, that are supposed to clean up the, the the dirty air that these cars throw off and make it uh, more possible for the following car to get closer and, you know, therefore, in theory, be able to um, uh, have more opportunities uh, to pass. And uh, I, I think that's a, a very good observation because if you look at the way that the first races uh, have been won by Lewis Hamilton, or not even by Lewis Hamilton, when, when just in general, whoever has been leading uh in any of those races, when they've been out front, they've looked very comfortable to be out front. Like, look how far out uh, uh, Valtteri Bottas was in uh, in Australia. I mean, he was. I, what did he finish? Well, it was about six or seven seconds ahead of his uh, teammate Lewis Hamilton. But we've known that, especially the Mercedes has been designed to uh, to to be the car that's gonna that, that really perform best when it's out front in the clean air and leading the race. But I think it's a, an interesting uh, observation that uh, that he makes because, I mean, look how dominant Charles Leclerc looked in, the, in Bahrain and then uh, two weeks ago in China, just how good uh, Lewis looked out at the front there. So uh, perhaps on one side these new aero changes that they made for this year have had the the intended effect of uh, of bringing the cars closer together. But on the other side, that's still when you're out in the front in, into that clean air, that's, you know, you're just kind of running away. So maybe all it's really doing, these uh, aero changes, is that it's it's bringing the,
1: the, the following cars closer together. But Yeah, well, well you always have that benefit. Though, yeah, as the front car when having the air cold being colder, you're always gonna have a small amount of horsepower more and a small amount of maneuverability. Uh, that that didn't come out right. Maneuverability, <laughs> you'll be able to control your car better. Yeah. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So yeah, I think that's a that's another aspect to it. Yeah. Hey, Kevin. Uh,
0: b- before we start uh, wrapping up the show here, we're we're starting to wind it down slowly but surely. But I'm going to jump into the uh, the email here. Uh, we had uh, an email from a new listener by the name of uh, Michael Tarabay. And uh, he sent me an email a couple of days ago. And I'm just going to read it out here. And he says, uh, I'm a new listener, and I was wondering if you've ever discussed the best sections slash turns to watch races. I actually live in Austin and interested to watch the race there this November. He's talking about the uh, the U.S. Grand Prix. Uh, this would be another interesting aspect of the cast for me and useful information if you haven't already or if it's just common knowledge. Uh, thanks for your time. So Michael, thanks uh, first of all for the uh, the email. And um, well, I've got an insider. Uh, my buddy Dan is also uh, in Texas, and uh, he goes to a uh, circuit of Americas uh, quite often. Uh, was there just uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, for MotoGP, and he's been there for for other events, including the U.S. Uh, Grand Prix. Anyways, uh, so I, I asked uh, Dan what uh, w- where would be the best place uh, to, to watch, and he had a couple of uh, suggestions. And he said, and this is no surprise, uh, the main grandstands uh, for the top speed. Obviously, you get the uh, the nice long straightaway uh, along the strong uh, sorry, sorry, start finish there at Circuit of the Americas. He said uh, turn 15 is good for exciting uh, turns uh, and up at the hillside at turn one. Because I, I think uh, there in Austin, I think that's a quite a unique start to Formula One. Uh, you know, you, you come out of the start finish up the hill, and then before you get to the corner, it gets very, very steep, and then you go into that very sharp left-hander. So that is, uh, I, you know, there, there's always a bit of drama there at the start. So those are uh, your his uh, three uh, tips for Circuit of America's grandstands, main grandstands for top speed, turn 15 for exciting turns, and uh, up the hillside to turn one uh, for all the action there, especially on, uh, at the start of the race. So there you go.
1: I'll, uh, I'll give him a few advice if he ever makes his way all the way up north to Montreal for a Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, for me, I've experienced a Grand Prix at a few different spots. Uh I have did the hairpin a few times, and I did the hairpin in a few different series. I've seen IndyCar, Formula One, and NASCAR from the hairpin, and I do suggest it. But uh you do want to see the start, too. And I have to say, the the second to third turn in Montreal, it's an amazing view because you see them coming all the way to the start-finish line and then to see the first two turns and the exit of pit lane and then you see them off in the distance. So that's a great spot in Montreal. The second to third turn, you have those two grandstand. But I suggest as well to walk around, to walk next to... To find spots where you just see the track, see the cars through the fences and that you can enjoy it and you're closer to the track, you get the speed aspect when it's not just sitting down with your beer or your hot dog, which is great, love beer, love hot dog, love sitting down. But to truly get the speed aspect, just walking next to the track, there's always spots where it's general admission that you can just sit on the grass and just feel it, just sitting on the grass, Mark and getting to driver eye level gives you a totally different aspect, different perspective on the on the racing itself. So if you can, go to general admission, sit on the grass, and look at the cars from that level, that perspective.
0: Yeah, that's a great tip as well. I got a couple more. Uh, as well and uh, the first one I'm going to give and sadly this track is not on the circuit uh, at the moment but it has been uh, quite often uh, throughout the years and that's the uh, the, the Nürburgring and the uh, the first thing that I like about the, the, the Nürburgring and that was the, the first uh, race that I'd actually went to uh, back in 2001 when I was in my early 20s uh sadly dating myself here now but that this was peak uh, michael schumacher so you can imagine at the uh, the, the nurberg ring michael schumacher in a ferrari in germany you can imagine the uh, the atmosphere there anyways uh, where we were sitting is at uh, what they call the dunlop curve and if uh, for those of you who know the track it's at the bottom of the track and they had the cars they come out of the start finish wind their way around and they come down into a uh, the the bottom of the track, go down the hill into a, a very, it's not a slow hairpin, but it's a definitely a very uh, it's a slower part of the track. So it was cool. You'd see the cars come through some sweeping corners, coming down the hill, see them uh, lay on the brakes going into the hairpin, then they come out of the hairpin and then go up to the hill and then go into a very sh- uh a very quick left hander. And that was uh, quite spectacular because you get a good view of the the cars, especially in the opening laps, dicing for for position, coming down the hill. And then you'd see them uh, at at a, at a pretty good rate of speed coming down, laying on the brake, so you get that real sense of speed, then deceleration, go through the 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 uh, the, the hairpin, and then get back onto the power, and then up the uh, the the hill, and then into that uh, that fast left hander. And then more recently, I've been to uh, watch the Spanish Grand Prix at Barcelona. And a good uh, place where we sat was, it was one grandstand to the, I guess it would be to the west of the main grandstand, just across from the, the start finish. And it was a good place to sit because, number one, it was super convenient to get in and out of the uh, the, the main entry for the uh for the track and the circuit the 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 seats themselves are really good good atmosphere there because there's a lot of uh, race fans but also you had a good view because the, the cars were basically re-entering the track from the pit lane right across from us and you would get a nice look up the main uh, pit straight if you looked uh, to your right uh, so you get a real good uh, look at the cars, not only at the start finish, but uh, each and every lap, you would get the cars coming and passing you at absolute maximum uh, velocity, which was really cool. And then you go down into turn one, which is a right-hander, and then into turn two, which is a left-hander, which is kind of a quick succession of corners. So again, you get to see how these cars uh, really handle. And then the added bonus is when they go back around, the, um, there, there's a bit of a hill there. They go around the hill. Uh, Go past, I guess it would be turn three and four where uh, Grosjean had his uh, big spin last year and turn four where uh, Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton famously crashed into each other a couple of years ago. And then they come back around, and then you can actually see that far side of the circuit. It kind of uh, comes back in on itself, and again, you see a good, uh, a good uh, area of deceleration through a corner, and then uh, when they uh, put the uh, the the uh, the, uh, the the gas on again, and disappear up the hill. So th- those are a couple of suggestions uh, that that I have. So and again if uh, if anybody else has any you know send them in to us. You can tweet us at scudria f one pod on the Twitters or just email us like Michael did at scudria f one pod at uh, gmail
1: and if we can 't find the answer we 'll find somebody else
0: that,
1: uh, that <laughs> and, and I have a challenge for our listeners, Mark you know okay, go for it by the time that people listen to to this episode you know there 's the Baku Grand Prix this weekend, but it's a it 's almost a cultural event happening this Friday with the release of Avengers Endgame. Of course, biggest movie probably ever in the history of movies in this world. But for our listeners, who's your Thanos in the Formula One? Who's your favorite superhero or villain in the Formula One world? That would be interesting to talk about next week.
0: Absolutely. That's good uh, food for thought, Kevin. And just before we, we, we wrap it up here, and uh, turn off the lights in the studio. I'm just going to give out a couple of quick stats on the uh, on the Grand Grand Prix this weekend. 51 laps around the Baku City circuit. Uh, it's a six-kilometer-long lap. A total race distance of just a hair over 306 kilometers. And uh, Sebastian Vettel has the lap record there of a 143.441. And that was set back in uh, 2017. And uh, looking forward to it. Uh, Pirelli is bringing the harder compound uh, tires. The hard is the C two, medium C three, and the soft is the C four. So kind of the middle of the road, and uh, should be good fun to watch what goes down there. And Kevin, that's it. That's all I got for this week. So um, yeah, <laughs> look like I said, looking forward to the the excitement in Bakuda this weekend, and uh, we'll see what what drama we have to discuss next week. Exactly. And on-
1: Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say exactly, and you can follow me on Twitter at kev larame and uh, the show at scuderia f one pod.
0: All right, and uh, on behalf of myself and Kevin, thank you very much to listening to the show this week. We'll catch you guys again after the Grand Prix. Thanks for listening to the Scuderia F1 podcast. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, then head over to scuderiaf1pod.com. Want to get in touch with us? Then email us at scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com.